Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Jay Carthelian. I'm Jandrew Carthelian. And I'm Kari the Lion. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with Jerry. All right, it's good. No, that's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> Kari the Lion. All right. Uh, so today we have some pretty special news as uh, we finally become equal with the other podcasts out there who all happen to have a certain uh, Wizards of the Coast contractor on staff. The lore ones, anyway. Yeah, so big news for Andrew uh, this week. Uh, I am officially going to be starting work as a creative text writer for Wizards of the Coast. It's a freelance position writing card names and flavor text, so that's very exciting. And that's really all I can say because I'm under an NDA and I don't want to get in trouble. Do you want to talk about what that's going to mean for the podcast, at least? Oh, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I guess I should preface everything with if, if you follow me on Twitter, you've already seen this information. So so cool for you. If not, I've done a lot of work building my magic community brand on speculation, um, along with uh, Jay and Carrie here. And being a creative text writer means I can't do that anymore. Because I will have advanced knowledge of worlds and cards and all sorts of juicy stuff. So, I won't be contributing to any speculation that you see from here on out. Whether it's on the podcast or if it's, uh, you know, an article Jay or Carrie publishes in the future. Just officially, I have done no work on any of those things that you will see from here on out. Because I don't want people getting the idea that I'm, like, feeding Jay or Carrie information that's not going to happen. <laughs> you you already don't help us that much before the flavor text job. So. <laughs> well, that well, that was really mean. <laughs> I was about to say. No, I'm 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 kidding. I, it's, I, it's okay because I'm going to know things. I'm going to be able to sit back and laugh at how wrong y'all are are about everything. So that'll be fun for me. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, cool opportunity. Thanks to to wizards and creative staff for that all happening. Um, yeah gonna be exciting i'm gonna i'm gonna get to talk it's, it's gonna be really exciting like next year assuming this is still happening which i hope it is the podcast i mean is still happening assuming we're still doing the podcast next year when stuff i write for is actually out i'll have interesting things to talk about oh that'll be a lot of fun yeah but until then i my, my lips are sealed on the future but i could still talk about the past <laughs> we're all very good at compartmentalizing here so yeah all right. Uh, so with that wonderful news, um, one of the other things we wanted to mention is that Ethan Fleischer posted a digital version of the Dominaria globe. And my, my favorite thing was Pete Venter's reaction to, <laughs> to it because <laughs> he had talked about how um, it's exactly what he had wanted to do with the globe, but the software was prohibitively expensive. And uh, today, NASA offers that software for free to be able to scan and digitally upload a, a globe like that. So it's something very cool. We'll, uh, I guess we can just uh, tweet it out later or just retweet Ethan's tweet about it again. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll tweet it out. We'll, we'll thread it with the podcast. And I guess it would be two Fridays ago when this actually comes out. Uh, but uh, Ethan also published Dominaria Cartography 
which is just a, it's an amazing, amazing uh, article that just goes deep into both how he developed the Dominaria map that we see and uh, the process that, say, Pete Venters went through back in the day. And we had the opportunity, or at least Andrew and I had the opportunity to uh, talk to Pete Venters for like, an, was it like an hour, Andrew? It was close to an hour, yeah. So we talked to him a lot about the globe, and he, we thought we were getting all this special information. <laughs> uh, but uh, it turns out he had, a, I guess he had just given, e- well, either Ethan was like hiding behind us somewhere, listening in and taking notes, or he had already given the interview to Ethan and had all the answers for that kind of stuff. Probably prepared. the second one. Ethan's pretty tall. I think it would be hard for him to hide. Yeah, at least behind us. We're not very tall. Um, <laughs> I don't know about Carrie. I haven't seen Carrie in person. One day. I am as average height as you come. Yep. The other thing that came out, and uh, we will talk about, we're, we're going to be a little disconnected from these for a little while because our, our recording cycle is off, but Magic Story Podcast number 14, Reintroducing Dominaria, Kelly Diggs and Ethan Fleischer just go deep into their development of the world building around Dominaria. And it is, I mean, it's really good. Like there, it, it puts us to shame because obviously, well, it's not just because we don't have that insider knowledge, but like Ethan did so much research for geography before the event. And they're both so passionate to compare it between the three of us. We still haven't read every single piece of primary lore on Dominaria. Ethan single-handedly has. Yeah, that's a good example. <laughs> there, There is nobody on the planet who can talk about Dominaria the way Ethan and Kelly do. And it's impressive. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, like, I, I just, like, I can't even describe w- what it's like to, to talk with them about Dominaria. And it's just like, they, it, they just know everything <laughs> in some way or another. So one of the things that uh, the podcast talks about is how they determined how colors interact with history, which was very interesting and I hadn't thought about. So, for instance, white preserves. Like we see, we've seen this kind of style of world building before. Magic has this system of five colors, and if you're going to build a world around a single theme, you take each color and determine how that color deals with that theme. Uh, we, we saw this uh, kind of a bit on New Frexia um, with. How, do, how does each color interpret Frexia's ideologies and stuff like that. So, yeah, so this is dealing with history. White's all about preserving. So, like, this is where we see the Benelish stained glass that um, preserves their history and their religion um, from both in Dominaria's past and Sarah's realm. And it's kind of unbreakable stainless glass. So it'll not only preserve things from the past of the present but into the future for generations it's exactly what you would expect from white i think uh so blue studies the past which shouldn't really surprise anybody yeah it's pretty straightforward like the Tolarian academies uh studying old devices uh studying lore you've got urza's tome in a Tolarian academy oh and they have like a bunch of archaeological dig sites too so yeah, they're mm-hmm. literally digging up the past Black exploits the past, which is something we've actually talked about a whole bunch. Well, Andrew specifically was something he really liked about Bells Unlock in this. Uh, so it's it's something that I had immediately noticed about Bells Unlock is that if you're doing a theme on, you know, um, if you're doing a block based on history, having the villain 
corrupt history is a cool way to do that, and that's exactly what the intent was. So, so Black sees opportunities. It it treats things as means to an end. Belzenlock sees all these villainous acts that have occurred in Dominari's history and realizes that he can claim those for himself, and that gives him an awful lot of intimidating power over people who don't really know the truth. That's that's really cool, um, and and a, and a very cool black twist on how you deal with history and truth. Absolutely. Uh, my, one of my favorites is red, which is abandon or reforge the past reforge specifically, because that's what Radha is doing with, uh, with the Keldons. She has turned them. They were kind of marauders before they would just go and, and take, uh, if you're a fan of the, uh, Game of Thrones series, they're basically the ironborn. She has turned them into a nation of still strong, powerful, dominant warriors, but, uh, self-sufficient ones. So the flame, they have the, the flame of Keld, the, the, uh, saga very deliberately is a forge with the story of the flame of Keld in it. And I think we talked about that before, so we won't go too much into it. Additionally, Garna, who is splintered off from Rada, but also is kind of clinging to the somewhat original, um, xenophobia that the Keldans had. And is also in the balance of red and black, also exploiting that history for her own gain and to gather off that um, individual group. And then green is remember and bear witness, which uh, they I, <laughs> I don't really know what to say about it. A lot of green's memories are in uh, like living sculptures. So so one one of the things they talked about is the, the main two green factions in this set are Lanawar and Yavamaya. Lanoir's taken this really xenophobic stance because they remember the atrocities that were committed against the land and the elves in the forest. Um, and they're really bitter about it and are very much not interested in seeing those things happen again. Whereas um, in Yavamaya, the attitude is a lot more forgiving as like, this is a bad thing that, you know, bad stuff happened in the past, but we can work through it and come out with a wiser understanding of all sides. And that that makes sense for Yavimaya because it was literally born from the Argoth incident. Right. Where Urza dis- basically destroyed the original forest island, and Yavimaya kind of grew up uh, a bit up in a way. Uh, and they have had more recently for the Phyrexian invasion allied with uh, allied. Jesus, I don't know how I can't say <laughs> English words. Uh, uh, had allied with uh, Urza. So they are much more accepting, where Lanawar kind of had to be dragged into it by Eladomri. Uh, then they talked about what Dominaria's feel would be, what its definition would be. You know, people talk about like a lot like of uh, Planet of Hats, kind of like Star Wars, where each planet has its own unique identity, and that's that's all it is. So all it is is the ice world, or all it is is the desert world. That's not really true for magic because it, it's a little bit deeper than just like one a resonant. You need to have five factions at the very least on there. Yeah, and a resonant theme is very different than a single distinguishing feature. People also misunderstand what the the world of hats means. Like. Kaladesh is inventor world, but that doesn't mean it's not a deep world. Like, Ixalan is exploration world, but that doesn't mean it's a tiny world devoid of 
these geopolitical machinations. I mean, you can go back and read the Ixalan story, and it's it's really meaty, the, the interactions between these four main cultures. The way hats are used is they're kind of a singular core that the rest of the world is built around. That doesn't mean that that core is all there is to the world. Innistrad right. has got the core world, but... Innistrad has multiple human cultures, many weird, monstrous things lurking in the night, thousands of years of history. The problem with Dominaria is that, you know, Kaladesh has one block, Zendikar has two blocks, Dominaria has like a billion blocks, which each of those blocks had its own little hat. Uh, Mirage was was Sub-Saharan Africa world, Ice Age was Ice Age world, um, Antiquities was the archaeology set. That aggregated over time makes Dominara very complicated, and that history is something that's unique among magic worlds. So Dominaria's hat is now history world, but that doesn't mean Dominaria is reductionistic in its exploration of that theme. So, yeah, that's right. The, um, uh, the three themes they settled on that they talk about in this podcast were resonant fantasy, which... A lot of people talk about how they want traditional fantasy, which makes me feel a little icky because usually when people mean that, they're talking about specifically like British fantasy, which is a very, very narrow subset of like all mythologies. But they also, the deep history of Dominaria was going to be a major theme. And then the vibrant renewal following the mending was a theme. And these all came together to provide this incredibly flavorful set and distinctive set. Yeah, and so th- the big importance is that the deep history is great if you know it. If you don't, like Dominaria, because Dominaria was around at the beginning of Magic's life, it is the world that has a lot of those standard kind of Tolkien fantasy tropes, knights and wizard schools and stuff like that. That's all generally resonant to a fantasy audience so even if you don't know dominar's history you can see you know you know knights with stained glass shields is still cool wizards with like floating tomes and little magic devices is still cool even if you don't fully grip the thousands of years of detailed lore behind it uh which is neat and they deliberately made it so a lot of that deep history isn't something that you'll have to have read a specific novel for like a lot of the Thran ruins off in the background are not, they're not something we knew about before. Right. But it really lends to that feel when you've got these giant Thran megastructures in the background of this, you know, sword and sorcery. I think the, that third theme of vibrant renewal really ties both of these together and really gives Dominaria a visual style that we haven't seen before. We're used to seeing, Dominaria getting blown up every set, culminating in the ultimate apocalypse of apocalypses and time spiral where everything was just so depressingly dark and dusty and worn down. Uh, there's so much green, there's so much color in this set. Uh, I, th- I think Nature's Spiral is really the epitome of that image because we have we have the strip mine being filled in with all the plants. So you you get the idea that something happened a long time ago but that the plane is recovering. It's really that glue that holds the resonant fantasy and deep history 
themes together. What I also liked is that they take reader questions at the end of every uh, podcast. So hopefully one of ours will show up there and then we'll talk about their response to our question <laughs> here. Uh, I but the ones if I asked any. I asked like a billion. I'm pretty sure we asked a bunch, a whole bunch of facetious ones about like Mother Ludi and Jaya. <laughs> um, don't know if they'll answer those or not. Fingers crossed. They're going to be in the story, so that's okay. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, some of the answers, though, are important for people to hear. Like, just because it doesn't appear in the set doesn't mean it no longer exists. So, like, slivers and, you know, half the world that doesn't appear in the actual set. There's only so much space in Dominaria in this single 200-whatever card set. 249, but minus 20 for basics. So, yeah. There you go. So, yeah. Um, one of the other cool things is they mentioned Dominaria because it's two and a half times the size of Earth. It's hollow. Uh, and that's part of the reason it, um, it doesn't have a gravity that like crushes people. It has yeah, Earth-like so if, gravity. If you're a hollow Earth conspiracy theorist, congrats. You have a lot of knowledge about what Dominaria's crust is like. I also don't buy that that's the reason that gravity is normal because <laughs> the crust is a very thin layer and Dominaria would need to have a lot less mass, like a lot less. So there's got to be something really funky happening in its magmatic core, um, it, which we know it has magic. because there are plate tectonics. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. But yeah, no, there's a lot of plate tectonics going on and a lot of very active, constantly active volcanoes. So yeah, there's something going on down there. Uh, one of the interesting things to me is how like after... Pete Venters did all the work to set up the globe. The geography wasn't really maintained, uh, which was interesting. After Pete set up all this stuff to maintain the geography, future Wizards employees who did story stuff didn't maintain it as, as well as Pete would have liked. So stuff kind of shifts around. It gets a little confusing. Like Otaria was invented and then had to be placed somewhere and so like the the tectonics don't quite work out with where mountain ranges and stuff are on the map i i always find creative things where a lot of hands churn the soup come out because there's i don't know it, it's it's just interesting who who works on what and who chooses you know what what gets pulled through what gets remade how things fit together that and passing back and forth and when you've been around for 25 years like magic, that happens an awful lot. Yeah. And then somebody like Ethan comes along and tries to salvage as much as possible. Yeah, he hum Humpty Dumpty that map right up. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> for uh, as many issues as I would have expected, the fact that like the only major ones were the where Scarwood is on the final map is pretty impressive. I mean, Madeira isn't where it belongs, but that's okay. I'm a grown man and I can deal with it because there's, yeah, because there's one, there's one compass direction mentioned in one short story in one obscure anthology. Like, it's not a big deal if that gets contradicted. Uh, there, <laughs> there are, like, there are so many little details like that through the history, which one that Ethan does mention that I went and tracked down to and, and read about was, uh, we know, one of the other planets in Dominaria's solar system, uh, Jinue, which is closer to the sun than Dominaria, and apparently has dwarfs. It's mentioned 
in a line by a dwarf character in uh you know one of those short stories in one of the old harper prism anthologies you wouldn't even notice but it's described as um Gino is described as dominaria's evening star and the dwarf points at it uh evening star is a phrase that is also used to describe venus or mercury on earth so hmm. you can extrapolate from all this information that Genua is another planet in the solar system like cool little detail there um, interesting that like you'd never it, it's never going to be important but it's neat like there's there's stuff like that all over the history so moving on the last piece of news we want to talk is uh there was an announcement the day we are recording this which is wednesday april 25th uh that tennyson has signed a deal with wizard of the coast to distribute arena in i guess china or is it in like uh, East Asians and Asia in general? I think. Okay. Yeah, all of its digital properties within that region. Gotcha. But what's what was really cool is it came along with a piece of artwork that looks kind of like a felidar, which is a very magic specific creature. And I'll let Andrew talk about what it what that specifically. But it has a very Chinese fantasy vibe. Uh, like if you're, I mean, I I hate to go to go to Mulan because but it's just the the most common Chinese fantasy touchstone for most people in the US uh it has the the tall narrow mountains the the kind of curvy trees in there and the art style is just very evocative of like Chinese mythology so it makes me wonder if this this art is from the the global series with um I'm going to give this a try Jiang Yangu and Mu Yanling uh, or maybe it's from Core 2019, which features a Chinese mythology set. But Andrew, go ahead. Right now, the Global Series is maybe more likely because we know that that has a Chinese folklore flavor to it. If Core 19 is the Bola set, then maybe not. Uh, yeah, so these are big, monstrous, tigery, leopardy, liony, horned cat monsters things, uh, which is a long-winded way of saying they kind of look like Chinese Felidar. Felidar appear on Zendikar and Kaladesh. They are cat beasts with uh, two large horns that come out of their forehead. They're they're very stocky on Zendikar because they're from the frigid continent of Sajiri. Or I should say they, they, were, or they were from the continent that used to be Sajiri because Aldrazi took care of that. They're a little more lithe and elegant on Kaladesh because everything on Kaladesh is like that. But uh, these look like they could be a Chinese folklore spin on Felidar, which might in turn be picking up from the Chinese guardian lion figure that you see a lot in uh, Chinese statue work. Or if you're more familiar with uh, Japanese, the Shisa is the same kind of, uh, is a similar mythological creature, this kind of uh, stocky dog lion beast. So uh, very interested to see if that's a new thing or maybe there's a Felidar Sovereign reprint in that global series Planeswalker deck series and it just has the new Chinese themed art. We'll find out and we'll let everyone know when we do find out because that's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Moving on, uh, last time we promised we're going to start taking fan requests. Uh, we've gotten more than we can handle in a single podcast, uh, or at least until the story ends and we don't have any story to talk about. 
So today we're just going to cover two of the requests. The first one is to talk a little bit about the sagas versus Tamio's story magic, which I think is a very Tamio, Tamio's story magic. Why am I so bad at this? It's it's your thing. Everyone's got a thing. Everyone's got a quirk. That's yours. My thing is my my <laughs> one quirk is mispronouncing everything. Uh so I think it's really interesting. I think the sagas would be a really great way of illustrating her story magic in the future because her magic is derived from I mean stories. There's it's right there in the name. Her magic is derived from she has these scrolls of stories and then the stories either have like a a plot point or there's something about them that she uses to cast a spell. So if someone gets frozen in the story, she can freeze someone with the spell. There's a story about a goblin who uh, hides from a dragon, I think. I don't remember the exact story, but because of the hiding theme, she's able to hide herself uh, from the humans of Innistrad. So I think it's just really cool. What do you, what do you two think? It'd be interesting, especially we've talked about it before, bringing the sagas and kind of card types in that vein of not evergreen, but could come back at times like curses. Bringing those through um, supplemental products would be the easiest way to probably deliver on it being Tamiyo's story magic, but also I'm perfectly fine with stuff like legendary sorceries being representative of it or just story moment type cards individually but i do love sagas so either way yeah it's a cool connection um i i like that so so when you like when you play a saga you the the kind of flavor or mechanical connection is that you're reading this story of the past and as you read the chapters the chapters invoke some kind of magical effect which is exactly what tamio does so yeah, that that was neat and not a connection I had made when I looked at it because I was thinking about Dominaria, not Tamio. But uh, yeah, it's cool and 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 it's disappointing to me that Planeswalkers almost never refer to block specific mechanics. Yeah, that's but like if we were to get a future Tamio card with like uh, an ability that like returned a saga from your graveyard to the battlefield. That would be super cool and flavorful, but that's not really how Planeswalker cards are designed. Usually, we'll we'll, we'll see because they're we're we're heading into weird mechanical Planeswalker design space where they're tending to get more narrow than they've been in the past. Yeah, they went through a process where they that's all melt stuff. We don't talk <laughs> about that here. That's we'll have true. To start we'll a new just... podcast. We'll just let that sit. <laughs> so the other uh, listener request we got is to explain the uh, Carthalian lineage a little better. Uh, so today we're just going to go through here a little bit and we're going to start with Carth the Lion who uh, lived sometime 500 plus years before the uh, Brothers War. There's a recent source that that confirms that and uh, we don't know exactly when Dak and Blackblade number one where Karth appears takes place uh, but I'm gonna let Carrie talk about who Karth the Lion was so the story is warped around 
the planeswalker Gage Run Dahada, who is hanging out on Karandor on Dominaria, and had previously commissioned Deck and Blackblade to create the signature Blackblade, and then taken it along with his shadow Slash's soul. Where we pick up with the Carthalians is that Karth the Lion is opposing Dahada, is imprisoned by Dahada, and then is led into summoning the Planeswalker deck and Blackblade to his side, and through the magic of that summoning, the Amulet of Tifu, Dakin is bound to Karth, which means if Karth dies, Dakin dies, um, and Dakin can't planeswalk away at all. Karth the Lion ends up going through opposing Dahada alongside Dakin Blackblade. The whole pure event happens, which is referenced on Blackblade Reforged and in the first Dominaria story. And then in the end, Karth the Lion is still alongside Dakin, and Dakin has been marked by Dahada as her own and says that she'll come and pick up Duh, or come and pick up Blackblade later as her loyal servant. And it's revealed that this was all in machinations unrelated to Karth, but trying to make Blackblade into the perfect lo- perfect lieutenant for whenever she wanted to conquer Dominaria. And then that kind of leads into the next Carthalian that we see, which is Jason Carthalian in Ice Age number one. He is a childhood friend of Fraley's. They are both champions slash mages for their respective clans within the um, city of Storgard, um, which is ruled by King Miko, I believe. I always get it confused because it sounds too much like Mirko Vosk. And to note, this is about a thousand years after Fallen Empires and about 500 years before the world spell and when the Ice Age story takes place. So this... um also ties into Fallen Empires because the Planeswalker Tavesh that is on um, Dominaria and manipulating King Miko into kind of inter-city feuds because he rules over Storgard, but also there are the clans in order and somebody, um, Tavesh gets into this paranoia that the clan Emerald is working against him. And so King Miko kills the leader of Clan Emerald And this almost starts a war, but instead of starting the war, they officially rule that the champions of Emerald and Ruby must fight each other, which happen to be Freilis and Jason Carthalian. After nearly destroying the city, Jason Carthalian ends up triumphant, and Freilis is nearly killed, but her spark ignites, and that's not anything that's shown on screen, so it's a little bit confusing. But yeah, it's... Jason is also called Jace throughout the entire story by <laughs> Freilis, and Freilis is called Elise by Jason. So it's like, I guess, the the first official naming of Jace. They they do a lot of space-saving nicknames in the old Armada comics. Yeah. Because Freilis is a long name when you write it out because of that yeah. damn F. <laughs> Especially when you're hand-lettering. Exactly. Jason so the- to Jace was saving exactly one letter, though, so... <laughs> <laughs> who knows uh so the next one we want to talk about is uh i'll let andrew talk about but they exist during the ice age story in 2934 ar yeah so uh right around the end of the ice age is jail carthalian who's one of my favorite characters from the armada comics so the carthalian line is is known as these kind of noble knights 
Jail's a big loser, though. <laughs> like, he's really wimpy. He has no self-confidence. He only knows five spells, and they all suck. Um, <laughs> like, like he's, he's the black sheep of the family. And so, so this, this takes place shortly after the summon of the null moon in the comics. Uh, the planeswalker Farallon opens kind of a, a small rift to Chandelar to escape the shard of the 12 worlds. And Lashrak follows him. Tevishat, instead of following them, decides to stick around on Dominaria for a little longer. Um, because Limdul, the necromancer, has reawakened from his icy prison, and Tevish is going to give, you know, one last college try to, to ending all life and bringing all of Dominaria <laughs> to silence. Please. Um, <laughs> so he's in Tercier trying to kill everybody, and they call upon Jail Carthalian, you know, the, the mighty Carthalian lineage, and you know this this loser jail was going up against a planeswalker so so he he banters a lot with Tevishat. they are they're digging through some ruins for an ancient relic called the amulet of quaz and this is uh the these comics happen during a point in the story history where they put actual cards into the comics all the time so i'm going to read the rules text of this card because it's literally the most important plot point of this story so Amulet of Quads is a six-mana artifact. Uh, you remove it from your deck before playing if you're not playing for ante. Tap and sacrifice it, and target opponent may ante the top card of their library, which means that if you beat them, you get to take it forever. If they don't, you flip a coin. If you win the flip, that player loses the game. If you lose the flip, you lose the game. You can only activate it during your upkeep. So it is literally, <laughs> you say... You make your opponent bet ownership of one of their cards or coin flip for the outcome of the game. So, so Jail, you know, Jail is barely able to stay alive against Tevishzat and then finds, he manages to get to the amulet first and activates it and has, you know, kind of a 90s superhero quippy line about well, let's see what happens, or who's going to be lucky enough to win. And uh, the the result of the kind of magical coin flip is Tevishat loses. And so <laughs> this wimpy jail through this total bullshit plot thing defeats the mighty Tevishat planeswalker and banishes and, you know, sends him and uh, Limdul flying off to Chandelar. And my favorite thing about it is that uh, so jail uses four of his spells... Uh, and as Tevishat is fleeing Dominaria, Jail's like, ah, I've vanquished you, and I didn't even have to summon my Whippoorwill, which is a very crappy creature from early magic. Uh, so it, it's like, like he's bragging about the crappiest spell in his repertoire, like that he didn't have to use it, and it's it's hilarious to me. Um, it's 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 a it's a really tongue in cheek episode, but he ends up doing stuff with the the juniper orders um helps the world spell stuff happens he's on a lot of flavor text quotes so we jump ahead another thousand years or so um so each each of these carthelians are like a thousand years apart or 500 years apart very large time frame uh so we jump to adam carthelian who is the one exception to this rule uh, it's about a thousand years after Jaul, 
uh, Adam is kind of a jerk. And one thing we should note is at the end of the Ice Age, this young spell squire named uh, Ravidel and uh, the elder dragon Chromium Ruel are both killed. And uh, Christina of the Woods and some of the other planeswalkers who are there at the summit of the Null Moon, they resurrect Ravidel rather than Chromium. And uh, resurrecting him ignites his spark, essentially. And uh, so he becomes a planeswalker, but he also goes mad with grief. So he becomes a major villain. So when you see him again, he is threatening Adam Carthelian uh, while riding atop his chromium-shaped war barge, which he made from the corpse of his best elder dragon friend. Um, <laughs> and Ad, uh, he basically demands Adam sacrifice his son, Jared, and Adam refuses, and Adam's killed. Jared is orphaned, so he lives as an orphan for a long time before he uh, manages to get anywhere with reclaiming his lineage. Uh, he becomes a, he meets Christina of the wood, uh, who becomes a, a, his lover essentially. Uh, and she teaches him magic and basically the, the problem with poor Jared is that his story ties into this plot, uh, called the planeswalker war, which never actually happened because the old, uh, Armada comics line got canceled. So we don't really know what the outcome to that is. And it's not referenced ever again. I can give you the absolute last known status, which is given in Battle Mage, and it is Jared Carthalian, the Shadow Mage, orphaned as a child, raised to embrace anger and vengeance. Jared Carthalian embodies the last hope of a world under siege by conquering wizards. Um, though his forefathers have often walked a tenuous line between good and evil, Jared bears the crescent moon birthmark of the Elder Druid, a mark that places him in the pivotal role as Karandra's reluctant champion in this darkest hour. Um, now Jared must embrace all five disciplines of magic and unite the fractured lands if, if he is to defeat the sorcerer who murdered everyone he's ever loved, the battle mage Ravidel. Also tied to that, Gaedron Dahada is involved in this war and makes it clear that she also wants to kill the last Carthalian. <laughs> she wasn't a fan of Karth. Yeah, obviously that didn't happen because we go to the final installment of the lineage so far, um, Jensen Carthalian. Uh, and Jensen was just that flavor text character, but it does indicate that Jared or another Carthelian, but likely Jared, because the implication is that Jared is the last of his line when he's around, uh, that they had additional children. So I'm wondering if Jensen is a dis uh, Jensen is a descendant of both Jared and Christina of the Wood. Oh man, that would be great. Yeah. Wouldn't it? I hope he's as grounded as Christina, if that is true, and yeah. that he punches somebody in the face for what happened to her during the Frexian invasion. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. We... I hope he just like walks up to Karn and slaps him, because <laughs> that's the closest we're getting to Urza, so. All right, and so those were our two fan requests for the week. Oh, did you have something you wanted to add real quick? Oh, he could slap Joda also. <laughs> I guess. So let's get into the story for the week. So the story for this week is the overall plot is relatively simple. Uh, it is an awesome bridge from the time spiral cycle of novels to uh, Dominaria proper. It all takes place uh, like uh, in the decade after uh, the mending 
when uh, Tefiri was still getting used to his mortality and trying to outlive his notoriety, so to speak, for phasing out Zalfir during the Frexian invasion. Pilgrims brand him with the name Destroyer of Zalfir, which is pretty intense. Also accurate, sort of, mostly. That's rough. <laughs> so we'll talk about specific bits we liked in a second, but the overall uh, structure was just that uh, he meets up with these two characters, Quende, who's on a card in Dominaria, and Subira, who is his future wife. Uh, and there's this minor murder mystery who killed this guy named Maquette. And it turns out it was Quende who was seeking vengeance for the loss of his people's home. Uh, he is a descendant of uh, Megata the Lion. And uh, we've talked, I think we talked about Megata last time and yep. Quende, actually. We, we so. went through Quende's history. He's all his, his flavor text and then all the stuff on his card is all reference to old Zalfiran military might. So he's, he's very proud of his ancestry and very angry that Teferi is the destroyer of Zalfir. So he tries to take revenge, which is didn't go so well. <laughs> but he walked away pretty much fine. Yeah, so Quende, uh, he summoned a uh, magical sandstorm uh, to try and weaken Teferi before... Teferi, I'm sorry. Uh, before attacking him personally, because Teferi would be too strong for him otherwise. He also killed Maquette, who was also, who was supposedly a thief and a murderer, uh, in order to try and frame Teferi. And basically, he was trying to weaken Teferi so that he could strike a killing blow. Sabira stops him, and she has a great line where she's like, "Go, go, and do something useful with your life," uh, which was just a. I, I really like Sabira because she's she's smart, um, kind of no nonsense, exactly what Teferi needs. I have determined that it is a crime that Subera doesn't have a card because she is fantastic. She is the perfect foil to Teferi. You know, Te Teferi is wisecracking and talks in roundabout and riddleistic ways. And Subera is just very direct, very to the point, doesn't pull any punches, um, but is also very empathetic and understanding. It's very clear to me why she and Teferi fall in love. They are like perfect personality complements to each other. Uh, like, like not not in like a rom com way, but like in what seems like a very fulfilling, inspiring way. <laughs> like they're they're just like the perfect couple, as we find out by the end of the story, because that's where Niambi comes from. <laughs> so we'll talk let's let's talk about some of the cool flavor or lore bits were in here so first we learned that the cabal had already starting to uh they had already started to have their resurgent and resurgence and were already starting to spread just a few years after the mending which really seems to tie bells and locks return to the mending itself uh which which kind of makes sense which i, I think we i think we talked about earlier and hypothesized that you know why is bells and lock only around now well the last we know the mending happened so probably has something to do with the mending this really ups the percentage that that is true so we know the mending was 60 years ago and we know niambi's 50 ish and we know she wasn't born yet at the beginning of the story by at least a few years so we're we're less than 10 years after the mending probably five to seven and there's already talks about the Cabal moving off of Altaria. 
which means Thousand Lock moved pretty fast. From a metaphysics perspective, it makes sense. Um, so we have a lot of examples of things changing, you know, like uh, right around the mending. That's where the uh, great ether boom, hap- ether boom happened uh, because the metaphysics of ether changed on Kaladesh. A guy, yeah, we think. Agyrim uh, split off. There are two events that happened at the same time. Of course, it's related. Come on, folks. Agyrim split off from uh, Ravnica proper and uh, just kind of disappeared one day. I want to blast you for pronouncing it that way because I say Agyrim, but I actually have no idea how to pronounce it. So in my head, I say (laughs) Agyrim just so I could remember how to spell it. But I figure Agyrim sounds like a more legitimate way of saying it. We're going to have to, to find find Kelly. So that's the, the ghost quarter on Ravnica, for those of you who aren't aware. Uh, it changed how the Great Aurora worked on Lorwyn. So Kelly had mentioned that Belzenlock was involved in something called the War in the Abyss. So whatever the Abyss was, if Belzenlock was sealed away, I think they said like 15,000, 20,000 years ago. Jorah implies... That it's about 20,000 years ago, which is concurrent with the sealing of the the primeval dragons, but more importantly, is basically before we know anything that happens. Way before recorded history, yeah. Whatever happened to Belzenlock, it's possible that the mending changed the metaphysics so that he could get free. So the other thing to mention, uh, we already talked a little bit about uh, how Tefiri is now known as the destroyer of Zalfir. But in this story, that oh god, Jay, I typed it in our notes in all caps. You gotta, you gotta the say destroyer it of Zalfir. He is a very yeah. There yeah, we go. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, he's a very scary figure, and I think Andrew noted that uh, it's kind of parallel to how Urza shows back up in time streams. Oh, that was me. But oh, that was you, Carrie. Go ahead. Yeah, Master Melzora was Urza's. Um, persona during time streams era as a result of having his name severely blacklisted <laughs> by the um Salix blast or urza's ruinous blast as it is on the card yeah you don't escape a name too easily but where urza literally adopted a different name tefiri kindly corrects people and just heavily insists that it's not his name um and insists that his since he's aging slowly um that he was named that as um i believe a regional name or a family name at the time he says it's a family name and they didn't want to disappoint his great-grandmother yeah it's not the greatest but also there's only I'm guessing that there's only that kind of regional weight to the name um, within the area of Jamura. Um, outside of there, I don't know how many people knew about the absence of Zalfir. I'm sure it's recorded other places, but I'm not sure everybody knows as heavily that Tefiri is the person to blame for that, and Tefiri was a time mage who is to blame for that. But uh, Subira puts it together. Yes, very quickly. Yeah, she's, she's very smart. I, I, I like her a lot. Well, she, she she just sees through Teferi's BS. <laughs> this is true. She and Quende are asking Teferi these questions because they're trying to solve this mystery. And Teferi's kind of dancing around the questions and like not answering or half answering. And Superior's just kind of like, okay, I've had enough. Just just come clean about everything. You're him, right? 
And Teferi's kind of like, yeah. <laughs> but then, like, Quendi's not there at this point. Uh, but And Sabira has this moment where she's like, wow, that really sucks. This must really be hard for you to have to live with this horrible event. And Teferi's like, yeah. But he kind of starts to get over it. This is a big character-building story for Teferi, where he he starts off certain that phasing out Zalfir during the invasion was the right thing to do. And he ends the story not so sure, and really questioning his decision-making back when he was an immortal godlike arrogant being. Of all the stories about Planeswalkers from before the Mending to the present day we've had, Teferi's the one who's kind of found his humanity, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate, both for him as a character and in general, because we don't need more people like Nicobolus and Nobnixilis and Liliana uh, lusting after their former power. Yeah, uh, We have plenty of those already. That's been done. I, I almost wonder what Joda would think, because Joda gives Teferi a mouthful about Planeswalkers <laughs> oh, in... Is it the Planar Chaos? Uh, it is in Planar, Cha- Planar Chaos, yeah. Yeah. He he rips Teferi for being a jackass planeswalker who's completely disconnected from reality and, more importantly, people. I wonder what Jodo would think to encounter Teferi now that Teferi's kind of rediscovered his own humanity. Uh, oh, you know, it's funny. Now that you say that, there's a line in there where uh, Teferi mentions that the only people who would really know who he still is would be that new Mage Academy at Talaria West, which, of course, Joda is involved in. <laughs> so he was like, yeah. yeah, watch out for this Teferi guy. So anyway, a lot of this character growth comes, well, not just meeting Subira, but uh, he and Subira have a daughter together named Nyambi, which we actually met as a 50-year-old in the last story. And I really, I really liked this particular section. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a dad. Uh, I've got a toddler, and so he's playing with his toddler, and his overprotectiveness is great because she trips over like a, a broken piece of stone or something, and he's like so startled he casts a time spell to to like freeze her in place, and it reminds him of what he did to Zalfir, and he thinks about like doing that same kind of thing to Nyambi, like to freeze her in amber in order to protect her, like he did with Zalfir. And the thought just turns his stomach because it would rob her of her ability for, for growth. And, you know, he's, he's musing on it. He makes sure that there's like nothing that, uh, nothing that's going to hurt her on the ground. And he's thinking about it and he's like, well, you know, if I let her go now, you know, she'll fall. She'll just have, uh, some bruises and she'll, she'll think carefully about, you know, next time she's playing in such a little dangerous tripping hazard area. But what he ends up doing is he unfreezes her and he ends up just catching her and hugging her. And it's such a sweet little scene because even though he knows he should probably just let her fall, he can't bring himself to do it. But he also has had a lot of character growth um, in terms of his, as as Andrew described, as how he views Zalfir uh, and how he wants his daughter to grow. It's also kind of cute that he's a, he's essentially a stay-at-home dad. He goes from an immortal god to being like a stay-at-home dad, and he's a pretty good stay-at-home dad, so I love it. The last thing we want to mention with this story is he starts to muse about Urza's artifacts, which might just be a connection to the last story where we find him again, 
or it might be a connection to this sort of apocryphal legacy that we've talked about uh, since the last story, where Teferi is looking for objects of power that Urza left behind that could help him phase back in Zelfir. And uh, I have to wonder if they're all on Dominaria, or if one of the major reasons for Teferi regaining his spark is to search the multiverse for them. Because the legacy wasn't all on Dominaria. The, there were pieces of it found all over, uh, and not just because Valrath stole it. Yeah, good thing uh, the Weatherlight crash landed on Mercadia, where there happened to be pieces of the legacy. How super helpful. <laughs> yeah, where, uh, where Ramos was. I also want to ask you guys something. In all of the years that Tefiri has been a part of Magic Story, one plane that's not Dominaria that Tefiri has been to go oh that's a good one <laughs> that ocean one yeah it's it's yeah, just exactly, that, that ocean, ocean one, one where he freezes the shark planeswalker but i expect there might there might be like other anecdotes like that spread throughout the stories but we've never actually seen Tafiri be a planeswalker off dominaria which is that's the problem change. when your story stays on one plane for a million years your planeswalkers yeah. don't actually travel the planes you know what's funnier though Teferi is like, what, it's like, he's like 1500 years old, somewhere in there. How much of that do you think he actually is? Because he phased out uh, his island during Mirage for a s two centuries. And then he phased out Zelfir for another 300 years. So he's actually only a thousand. I'm not doing the mathy part trying to figure out how old he actually is, because his body's only 50. That's true. <laughs> if, if Frank Karsten was uh, a Vorthos, he can crunch those numbers. But <laughs> but anyway, regardless, I I like that Teferi got two character building stories, especially if he's going to be joining the Gatewatch and be a major character. Because joining the Gatewatch signals that you're going to be a major character, not only in this block, but as Magic Story moves forward. And what I like about it is I, I judge, I gauge reactions because I know who's like a newer Vorthos who started in the last few years, who's been around since like the mending and who's been a fan since pre-mending or has uh, has at least gone back and read a lot of pre-mending stuff. And what I like is that even the newer Vorthos who know Jack about anything pre-mending and, you know, don't even know very much about earlier novels post-mending, which is, I should clarify, is perfectly fine. You don't need to have read everything to enjoy the story. My point is just, I really like that everyone likes Teferi, or Teferi. Even the new people are really growing attached to him. And so these story, these two character building stories have done a really great job introducing him again. Yep. Even I like him now. All right. So with that, uh, let's go to our final thoughts. Andrew. Shout out to Matt Burnett, who is uh, used to write for Steven Universe and now has his own show, Craig of the Creek, on Cartoon Network. This past week came out with an episode that's a whole homage to magic. The, the, the game in the episode is called Bring Out Your Beast, but there's uh, all kinds of references to old magic cards, recent magic imagery. Definitely go check the episode out. Um, it's a short 11 and a half minutes-ish. The show as a whole is really fun. Matt's a big old nerd, and there's a lot of kind of 
D&D-esque dialogue and plot lines. It's it's a lot of fun. So that's cool. Cool magic thing out in other pop culture. So definitely check out Craig of the Creek. Awesome. Yeah, I've got, I've got to do that. You you mentioned that to me the other day, and I have uh, I have yet to to pull it up. But then again, I was away all weekend, so hopefully I can be forgiven. Carrie, last thoughts. You know how Tafiri catches Niambi when she's about to fall, like does the whole time mm-hmm. bubble thing. I was thinking maybe Urza just like sets up a daycare and then. <laughs> Gets a whole bunch of kids, but gets one of the kids to betray the other kids um, so that he can teach all the other kids a lesson, you know, lesson about being mean and defeating a unified cause. No, no, it is it is multiversal law that Urza is not allowed to be around children. So, you know, Urza Urza had a son and, you know, he had his chance as a mortal human to be a good dad. And that's a real good way to endear yourself to me is be a good dad. But uh, no, he was a bad dad. You know what Teferi is, though? He's a really good dad. So he's not. I think that more than anything really shows his character growth because he wasn't like the aloof jackass that Urza was. Yeah, at least not anymore. But anyway, Talarian babies, like a, a Muppet babies riff with like the Talarian Academy or the Nine Titans would be amazing. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been the Vorthos Cast.